Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cavi Productions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Conquest of Bliss. I am here with Johnson Chong. How are you today, Johnson? I'm well. How are you doing? I am fantastic. So Johnson's all the way in Australia, so there's a bit. if there's a bit of lag or talking over, it's not because we're rude. It's because it's lagging. Um, <laughs> so uh, Johnson very graciously um, agreed to give us his time today to talk a little bit about generational limitations and some of the issues that can arise with the differences between generations and the, and the challenges that come with that. So before we get into that, though, Johnson, can you tell me a little bit about what led you to wanting to help other people learn about this kind of thing? I suppose it all started really as a way to help myself. And then it just naturally transpired into sharing it with others who shared similar stories. So my my story really is around identity and rejection self-rejection, coming into self-love and into acceptance of anything that is either positive, negative, or neutral. And so, you know, like most people, I didn't have the rosiest of childhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, my, My parents were refugees from China and they escaped to Hong Kong because they grew up in an era where they were persecuted being land-owning merchants. And during communism, of course, everything was made equal, right? So Mm -hmm. they kind of had targets on their back. uh, And people were forced to turn on each other. Family members were turning on other family members just to stay alive. And it got to a point where they knew that they would not live if they stayed. So they fled to Hong Kong and and then it was there that my parents filed for asylum and then they ended up coming to the States. So that already is a huge trauma that happened mm-hmm. in my parents' generation that then kind of carried into the way that they brought me up. So I experienced a lot of physical, mental, emotional abuse when I was growing up because that was kind of the vocabulary that my parents were familiar with. It wasn't necessarily their intention to Mm -hmm. harm us, but it's just the way that they expressed themselves because they didn't really get a chance to work on some things and to work through that trauma. Mm -hmm. So because of that upbringing and also being gay on top of that to a very conservative family, all of these things piled up over um, on top of each other led to this very deep question of who am I? Mm-hmm. What am I doing here? What is my purpose in life? Why do I feel so anxious all the time? And it just led into this, this deep inner quest questioning of myself and of the world. And then I started exploring various modalities to get to the bottom of it. And that's really how it started. It really was a journey into myself before it became about others. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm sorry I'm sorry to hear that your family and you had to go through that stuff. Um, I really loved what you said about, you know, something can still be abuse while being unintentional. Because um, I think that's a lot of thing, a thing a lot of people don't realize. Um, 
So I appreciate that you mentioned that. Um, so my next question, I guess, would be, yeah. um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the story a little bit. So we'll, we'll get to the other part just in just a sec. Um, so what was the first, like you mentioned, you've explored many modalities. So what was the first introduction? Like how did you come to realize that there were options out there to, to learn um, how to find yourself and how to feel accepting of who you are? Interesting. So I suppose ever since I was young, my parents had always, and I write about this in my book, Sage Sapien from Karma to Dharma, and it was all, again, unconsciously. I didn't realize at the time, but my parents were not alcoholics. They were not, um, they didn't have a substance abuse issue. It was just that they, they were so traumatized as people that they wanted the best for their children. So they were overachievers and they were trying to live vicariously through us. And so with that being said, when we were younger, they would enroll us in all of these different things. And my one of the things they did was send me to Kung Fu. And I remember at 10, 11, that I was having these very big energetic experiences, mm -hmm. but also with no context as to what I was experiencing, right? <laughs> so, so in retrospect, I started learning about energy from a young age. I just did not have the maturity to understand it. And it wasn't until I went to theater school and I went to a four-year acting conservatory in, in New York City, um, uh, not oh, wow. New York City, but New York State, north of New York City, um, Purchase College. And that's where I learned about yoga. And because we were studying acting, it was very much about our own psychology and what makes us tick, learning that understanding that so that we could let go of that to mm -hmm. then embody these other characters we are creating. And so that was the first step into being conscious of the fact that I had all of these psychosomatic stories. And when I say psychosomatic, psycho like psychology, somatic meaning pertaining to the body, that a lot mm -hmm. of these stories were, or trauma and drama was trapped in my tissue. It was trapped as tension, so my neck used to have a lot of stiffness because when I was younger, I used to get hit with the back of my neck with a ruler because my parents decided to hire a very strict high schooler who was given permission to beat us if we were out of line mm. because this is the traditional Chinese way, right? And he would beat me as this eight, nine-year-old every time I did something he didn't like. And so I used to go like this because he would mm -hmm. raise his hand up. And, and so that developed into a movement pattern and there was a lot of, now it wasn't just physically being hurt, but there was a memory there of, I'm not good enough. I'm too stupid. I'm not worthy. All of these stories was tied into that physical pattern. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I was in acting school where we were unraveling that through a lot of the movement explorations. We had a lot of somatic based movement discovery types of experiences. Mm -hmm. And I would always break down and cry during these experiences because my teacher would do, sometimes we had one-on-one -on -one hands-on, sometimes we were doing this in groups. And it really was uh, an incubator, like a lab, if you will, of us laying down and experiencing what 
was in our body so that we can release that postural habit. Because mm-hmm. if you have a certain tick as a person, not all characters, if you're trying to be an actor, will have that tick. So you want to neutralize it. Yeah, that right? makes and sense. And so I remember just breaking down with, with a simple touch of the hand at the back of my neck, right? Like, oh my goodness. And then this whole flood of memories would start coming back. And, and then as we dove deeper and deeper into understanding the soma, the body, that's when I started to put two and two together and realized, wow, there's so much more to psychology than just the mind and the thoughts. Mm-hmm. There's the energy of it. There's right. So this is kind of the first, I would say, point of awareness that I had. And then I started diving deeper into spiritual principles through yogic wisdom and then into Reiki and into body work as a, as a body work therapist for, for years. And then, and then it went into shamanism and all types of things. It's just one after the other. And, and so this is kind of my journey in a, in a summary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and what you said, I think ties perfectly into the, the genera- generational trauma thing, because um, I don't think like, you know, when you talk about carrying um, trauma and, and issues in our body physically, um, it's said that that can actually carry down, like your mom carrying physical trauma can carry down into, you know, you physically as well as the um, more, I don't know how you would say that, more easy to see effects of, you know, the way that trauma affects someone's parenting, right? And it's, so it's kind of twofold that way, where you're getting the physical trauma, you know, right from the get-go, as well as the the trauma that comes with the way that, you know, the way that we're raised. So um, I would, I would, I guess, ask like, you know, how, how would you suggest someone start to even recognize that type of, that type of limitation or trauma that we're seeing intergenerationally? Sure. So first off, we're all traumatized to a certain degree just by being human. Mm -hmm. The drop of a stapler stresses out the nervous system because we, there's, there's, a wiring in our system where loud noises, anything sudden that is out of the familiar will cause you to go into a little bit of a mini panic. Mm-hmm. And then it's really how resilient we are as people and how well we're trained to then either be reactive to that or to respond to it, mm-hmm. uh, to, to it in a more conscious way that doesn't turn into a freak out. Now, 50% of our stress responses were inherited through our mother because those those the stress hormones were passed down through the placenta 50% of that into us so a lot of it's not really our stuff so mm-hmm. from an eastern philosophical point of view we would call that karma and karma is so much more than just the stories that are passed down but it's it's the law of cause and effect it's that every choice every action has a ripple that goes down in my shamanic lineage, they say seven generations. Okay, so things yeah. are so old, repeating over and over again that it may not even be yours. And it could be something that your great grandparents had done and that pattern stuck. And of course it gets diluted and diluted by the time it gets to you, but that seed is still there. And then mm-hmm. we spend our entire lives feeling a little bit disoriented and alone. And we go on some sort of quest, whether you call it a spiritual quest or a vision quest or whatever it is, but until we all awaken to some understanding of 
a purpose that is greater than ourselves and that we start to align our lives moving towards that purpose and inviting that purpose more into the present, then we will always feel a little disoriented until the day we die. And that's really how we overcome the intergenerational stories is that we have to, as human beings, find some level of service. Now, what that looks like for each person is completely different. Maybe your service in the world is being a really good mother to three or 10 children. <laughs> Maybe someone's service is in saving the world from all the plastics in the ocean or whatever it is, but it has to be an authentic choice versus something that is an unconscious, oh, okay, well, my dad was a doctor, so I'm going to be a good person and be a doctor as well. Well, at least I'm helping people. But that may not actually be your dharma, which is your purpose. So you have karma, you have dharma. Karma is not oftentimes conscious, right? And dharma is something that you actively choose that's aligned to your authentic expression. And so this is, this is our journey. Every person is going to go through this in some variation or another. That's uh, that's very cool, and I mean, I I love that you're you're so good at uh, putting words to a lot of the thoughts I have. Um, I say things really clumsily, like I think that everyone needs something that sets their soul on fire. That's usually how I how I say that. Um, <laughs> so uh, so I really love that, and and so like you know you you spoke of of uh, you know it diluting and being a seed and. And like what, um, what tools, like, I mean, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time in self-exploration as well. Um, and I always hope that other people who have sent, spent this time um, can like actually put to words the process a little bit. <laughs> um, like, how do you recognize, oh, that's not mine, but I have to deal with it anyways in, in an individual level. Like with that great purpose, we still need to filter through these issues, right? That's a wonderful question because then it brings up the other question, what is me and what is not me? And as we dive deeper into this process of self-illumination, we start to realize that everything is me. And so if we realize that everything is me and that, you know, I am you and that there's some as and you are me and there's some aspects of Kara and Johnson and some aspects of Johnson and Kara, and we start to build this bridge of empathy between one human being and another, and then from one human being to groups of human beings, then we start to see that we're not so different from each other and that all of our stories don't essentially matter. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and if they don't matter, then then we're able to let go of it and not be so entangled in this game so much. So that's so I'll I'll use my example for um, I'll I'll use my life as an okay. example because it makes the most sense for me. <laughs> and <laughs> so there's there there was a time when i hated my parents for being my parents for a being chinese americans because they made us speak chinese other kids didn't have to we had to go to school an extra day in the week on sundays we had to learn really archaic chinese and learn how to read and write it, it was an extra day that we didn't get to play other mm -hmm. kids had the weekend we didn't um, <laughs> and then there was also the whole just the culture was so vastly different from, you know, American culture was very much about promoting uniqueness and individual expression mm -hmm. and freedom. Whereas 
Eastern cultures are more about the family unit and serving the older generations, making sure that you respect them, you're expected to live with your parents and even your grandparents and take care of them mm-hmm. until they die, right? And it, you, you, it's about self-sacrifice and serving the unit. So there was a lot of conflicting cultural themes happening. So I really resented that and also resented the fact that my parents did not express their love in a way that was affectionate. Whereas, you know, I would look around at my friends and their parents would hug them. They would say, I love you. All these things happened. That never Mm -hmm. happened to me. We didn't get touched. We didn't get I love you's. But the I I love you's were done transactionally with, you know, here's a roof over your head. You get to have an education, mm-hmm. some food, a little money. You can buy something you like. So there was love. It just wasn't shown in the way that I like. It wasn't displayed in the way that you expected it to be. Right. And then it was also, so now this is the thing. Now, I was also surrounded by people that were experiencing things from what I thought was from a what was completely different from my own experience. Mm-hmm. They were all getting hugs and all these things. So I started comparing myself. So I started valuing also that that experience was more valuable than my experience. And so then this resentment kind of creeped into all the, the ways that I was behaving and thinking about things and relating with people. And so that brought up a lot of anger and a lot of self-rejection and hate, and I wasn't accepting of anything. And so I put all of that blame onto my parents. Mm-hmm. So that was my relationship to my story because I saw that as just me. So I'm an island on my own, and this is all my stuff. And as soon as I started to dive more into other spiritual ways of seeing and perceiving the world, I started to realize that, wait, no, I am Kara. Kara is me. I'm Joe. I'm Mary. I'm all these people, right? It cross-culturally, no gender involved. It's, it's, we're just souls. And when you can really start to adopt a very zoomed out, almost eagle eye perspective, and you're looking down at everything, you see how small you are, mm-hmm. you start to realize, wait a minute. Okay, maybe my story is very particular and the details are very unique, but Kara or Joe or Mary or all these people, they share similar themes. They probably experience a little bit of anxiety and self-rejection and all this stuff, but in their own unique way. And when you can start to see that, then your own story just starts to melt away because it doesn't hold the kind of weight that our mind has given it. Mm -hmm. And, And that's how we start to come out of it. We, we wake up to the fact that other people are going through the same thing. Of course, now there are like various steps and techniques and so many different paths to follow. But the first, the first thing is an awareness. It's an awareness that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And then how we get there, that's everyone's own, own unique way of getting there, right? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Like just starting to understand yourself in relation to the world instead of your own unique, like, you know, and, and letting go. Okay. Sorry. I'm, (laughs) I have so many thoughts that come in all at once and then trying to like spit them out and they get all, they get all uh, distracted. Um, I really love that is, is the synopsis of (laughs) you you speak a lot more eloquently than me. Um, So 
so like your your book, it, it basically chronicles this journey toward awareness or um, like I'd love to hear a little bit more. I love the name, by the way. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to just like hear a little bit more about, uh, about, about your book and, and how that came to be. And, and like, cause it sounds like you've got a lot of really helpful, useful perspective that can help people to see things in a little bit of a, a more holistic sense, you know, see themselves as part of a greater whole, greater, um, universe, you know? Sure. So I started writing the book, not intentionally to create an actual book, but I was trying to create almost a manual on meditation because I've been teaching yoga and meditation for over a decade now. And I wanted to create something that was more relatable and tangible and less textbook-like. And that just started to go on and on and on and it turned into a book. So that's (laughs) what happened. And it... It, <laughs> that's kind of how these things happen. And it, it was the only way that I was able to share about certain spiritual principles was through relating it through my own personal experience, mm-hmm. because most of us learn through story. That's, you know, something that happened to us. Oh, now we have an experience of it. And then we can see that someone else can relate to that because they also have something similar going on with their questioning of their identity. And that was what, where the book came from. It was about imparting spiritual principles, but applying it to some sort of modern context that people could relate to. Because sometimes, you know, when you're reading ancient wisdom texts like the Yoga Sutra or, you know, the Bhagavad Gita or these epic, epic poems, uh, or even like the I Ching or whatever it is, these mm-hmm. ancient texts, <laughs> it can feel a little bit distant to people. And however, the essence of it is very applicable to today. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of extrapolating just some ideas of awareness and some principles but, but without going way philosophical about it and making it more about story. Um, and, and that's really, no one has to be spiritual. Like I don't even like that word, but that's the only word that we have to describe. Uh, um, yeah, it's a little overused. Of, of yeah. What we're talking about. <laughs> it is. It's kind of like throwing a dart at a really big wall and like that's spirituality right there. It's like well, nowhere yeah, like, near the bullseye because everyone's going to have their own unique experience of spirituality and what that means to them. And well, so like, that, oh, so, so the book is, is really, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, so go ahead. Sage Sapien from Karma to Dharma is really about helping others through the lens of my personal journey to find where their blind spots are or their karma, what they've inherited, the intergenerational stories, the drama, the self-talk that's not so positive, and moving from that stage to one that is more conscious and more aware and more wise, more loving, more free, which is the road of Dharma the road of feeling like you're living with the purpose of something much larger than yourself. So it becomes a life of, of service mm-hmm. in whatever way that looks like. And so that's, that's the book. Um, yeah. So just quickly, what I was going to say, it was really dumb, but I feel like I want to, um, I was just thinking like, imagine, um, okay, I shouldn't say things are dumb, but I shouldn't say should either. Whatever. It's a whole mess. Um, but it's, uh, the, can you imagine if people use like physical in the same way that they use spiritual? 
like, well, it's a very physical thing or I'm a very physical person. Like, like, you know, like it means basically nothing, you know, besides that it's like, you know, basically kind of a third of our existence or a fourth of our existence, you know, because we have the physical, the spiritual, the mental and emotional, right? So imagine if people use those other words similarly, like that's such a weird, um, but anyways, sorry, I was just, <laughs> um, but uh, as you were talking about your book, I, I, uh, one of the things that occurred to me is I think that your uh, your story so far, it makes me think like, what a blessing that you went into acting, right? Because acting really translated that desire for you to understand all this stuff. And it puts you in a unique position to be able to communicate that really well to other people because you can sort of access these different, um, how would you say it? not mindsets, but you can sort of, uh, what, what would I, uh, you embody different ways of thinking in order to communicate more effectively. And that's a really kind of beautiful thing that not everyone has those skills. So that's very cool. I think everyone should go take an acting class or do some sort of theater training because it really is a journey of self-discovery. You learn so much about yourself when you're playing a different character. You're actually practicing empathy. That's really what's happening. Mm -hmm. so even if you're playing a villain and you're playing someone really dark, let's say like an Adolf Hitler or something, like mm -hmm. this kind of character. Now I've had to play really dark characters. And as, as a person, if you don't share similar values or belief systems as the character you're playing, you still have to put yourself aside. You have to learn to put your ego aside and figure out why that character is making those choices in that play or that script. Yeah. That is your job as an actor, is to remain neutral and to adopt a whole different perspective, even if you don't agree with it. And I think that's such a powerful practice of human empathy, because so often why people feel alone is because they get really stuck in their way of seeing the world. So it's quite narrow. Whereas when you mm -hmm. start to look at the shadow side of things and you're playing these you know criminals and psychotic people killers right there there you start to see some aspect of like a redeemable light within mm -hmm. that that's what we're looking for in everything right and this is there's even some aspect of trump dare i say that is redeemable <laughs> even though he's caused so much turmoil in the world and all the actions and decisions and someone's inability to see that is because that's their inability to see that within themselves. And so the trauma that we feel that is inflicted to us externally from the outside world to us when is because we have this cultural perspective that life is happening to us. Mm -hmm. We are the recipients of this malevolent, evil, principle that is governing the world, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if we adopt a more shamanic or spiritual energetic perspective, we know that the universe is neutral and that all the stories we create, whether it's a story of elation and joy, or it's a story of trauma and terror, that it's still self-created to some degree. And this is shown in quantum physics, right? Our reality is a holographic projection. Every thought, every action, it's shown through mathematical equations, is being generated in the moment. So 
from a quantum level, if that is the case, then every thought we have, every emotion, everything we decide, or everything that we 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 see mm-hmm. is a choice. So then, why are we choosing to see, let's say, COVID nineteen or the political situation? In the states, so let's say the states. I'm not a very political person, by the way. I'm just using that as an example. It's an extreme example, but but let's just say that it's because the elections around the corner. But if we let that cause havoc within, why? So the question is, why is that making me so upset? And yes, there's injustice, and there's people are losing homes, and people are losing money, and people are dying, and there's so much horror in the world. But again, if we look it. If we look at it from a soul perspective and zoom way, way out, we know that the soul's eternal. The soul doesn't die. It doesn't. It doesn't get born. The soul doesn't ever get destroyed. It is mm-hmm. this experience that is moving from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime, and then it's collecting all of these experiences so that the soul can evolve. Right. So if we have this perspective, then we realize that everything is an illusion. Everything is a play. And in Sanskrit, it's called the lila. It's a cosmic play, lila.、Oh, I love and、that. even if it means that you're playing the part of a villain, you know, it's like a movie. You know, this is here. You are. You were elected in this lifetime as a soul to play out the villain, and this person was elected to play the warrior of justice. And then you're doing this dance, and then the next generation happens, and the next happens. So this is the perspective that we all eventually come to when you're on the journey, and when you live in that very zoomed-out space, you can't take what's happening in the world seriously. It just—it doesn't. Whatever happens, whether it goes left or right with politics, whatever happens with the election, it doesn't hit us or live in us in the same way, and and that's how we move through trauma. Now it doesn't mean this is where it gets、uh, a little bit tricky because it, then people can go, oh well, then it, nothing matters. So let me just not do anything. I'm just、mm-hmm. going to crawl under a rock and hide. That's not the case either. It means that you're just aware that there's this play that's happening from a very zoomed out、mm-hmm. perspective, but that you've made a conscious choice to elect the role that you're playing in it. You might、mm-hmm. be playing the vigilante. You might be the nurse. You might just be the stay-at-home parent. You might be a teacher. Whatever it is, you do that role really, really well because you know that's the best that you have to offer in whatever timeline you're in, and and that's all we can really do.、Right? That's、uh, I okay. I just love everything you've been saying. This has been so much fun. Um, <laughs> um the.、Uh, I always, I always call that like what you're talking about. I mean, again, I don't have it all beautifully worded and stuff,、um, but I always call it like a life hack because the way I look at it is when shitty things happen, and even when I respond poorly, it's a lesson and it's helping me move toward whatever the you know the greater purpose is. And then when good things happen, I feel good. So it's kind of like no matter what happens, I'm I'm doing good and I and I feel happy overall because I'm able to look at that. Type of perspective,、um, so I really, I really just, I just love that, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so like, it seems like so you said you've been studying this for years and years and years,、um, and this this has been like this wisdom goes back thousands of years, correct? 
Yes, for sure. Even before that, it's timeless, really. I mean, it really is just just like in quantum physics, they're discovering a lot of these ancient principles that have been spoken through poetry, through epic spiritual texts. And it's just a different expression of it through mathematical equations, right? And so all of this is really, we can say, timeless. It's timeless wisdom that, you know, who knows how many thousands of years, right? But if if we're... If, if we're to say that spirituality is about connecting with spirit or energy, the world of the non-material more um, on a deeper level, then, then, it, then it is about uh, tapping into the mystical, the unseen, the non-logical. This is, that's, that's just what it is. So yeah, it's, it, wisdom itself is not... Wisdom itself isn't something that is, it can't be defined in a book. A book <laughs> yes. is really just a map. And then wisdom is you in the territory experiencing it. And that's that's when knowledge becomes wisdom. Because it's like if you have a map of like you're in Vancouver Island. Like I've never been to Vancouver. I would love to go to Vancouver. And then if I poke my finger there, like, oh, okay, look at that. I want to go to Kara's forest. <laughs> and it's like, there's her forest. Like that's what the map says, but until I actually step into the forest, I don't know. And then once I go into the forest, then I know like where the trees are. I can I can get a sense of like the, the pathways I've taken to get to Kara's house and how to get out of the forest, how to go deeper into it. And that's wisdom. So that's the difference between it, right? It's lived knowledge. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And um so like the reason so the reason I asked about how ancient it is is I always find it perplexing how it seems like to so many people this type of thinking this type of information is new. Um and for a lot of people like a lot of people dismiss it. Um, I'm sure you've come across a lot of people who dismiss that kind of stuff and and it can be challenging to watch people suffer. Um and and for me I just wonder if you've come to a similar place because I uh, everything you're saying has been resonating with me. So um, for me, when I, I come across people who it seems are needlessly suffering, um, I just kind of think, okay, well, maybe that's part of their journey. That's part of their role. Like you were talking about, sometimes you've got to play the villain. Sometimes you got to do this. And like, sometimes there's got to be a certain percentage of people who, for lack of a better word, live in, in ignorance of these ideas and these principles. And that's how I kind of reconcile that. Do you Do you have any thoughts along that? that when you're dealing, you know, with people you love that are sure. suffering? Sure. And yeah, like I see my parents who I've forgiven and let go of, but they're in a level of suffering, a mental, emotional, physical, spiritual suffering, because they want me, a gay man, to not be gay still. And they hope that it's a phase. And at one point I might marry a nice Chinese girl and have 10 babies and carry on the family name and long live the patriarchy. This is, <laughs> this is my, this is my parents like only wish for me. They think that what I'm doing traveling around the world and I haven't lived in the States for over seven years. And they, they think that is really dangerous. They think it's not a secure way of living and they subscribe to the whole notion of safety and retirement and grounding and all of these things, very opposite to the way that I see life. And so now I can 
just as much as they're trying to impose their viewpoints on me, mm-hmm. I could very easily do the same and say, wow, you guys are so narrow-minded. You don't travel. You just stay in the same place in Brooklyn all the time. And you think the world is out to get you, right? In the same way, I can make that judgment on them. What is the point of doing that, right? There's yeah. no point. They chose to have that experience And so I have to honor that experience. So as much as I needed to forgive them, in a a way, I have to energetically ask forgiveness from them. And I know that sounds strange. Why would a gay person ask their (laughs) conservative parents, traditional parents for forgiveness for me not turning out the way that they wanted me to Mm -hmm. turn out? It's because their framework of the world fits their belief systems. And they didn't want me to turn out this way. Um, But like, I still have to acknowledge that. I still have to acknowledge that we're different. And so it goes both ways. It's not just, wow, look at me. I'm a Uh, I'm super spiritual and I do all these things and I'm a global nomad and woohoo, look at me how free I am, right? Because then that means you're just taking the ego and you've put the word spiritual in front of it and now you're a spiritual egotistical maniac Mm -hmm. running around saying you're spiritual and you're better than other people. So, (laughs) and this happens a lot actually, you know, people go, they, they swing on this pendulum. So, I don't remember what the question was anymore, or <laughs> I don't <laughs> I was, know how I got to this point. But um, um, <laughs> I was just asking uh, about when, and I, you actually answered it quite aptly. Um, I was just asking about how, uh, like, you have found to reconcile those differences when you see people suffer. Because I agree fully, you you can't force your views on on someone else, or it's literally like the same trauma cycling back um, in the other direction. Yes. It's like, it's like angry vegans. Now I've been every label before and now I really don't care so much about labels. Now I'm just a plant-based person who occasionally eats some halloumi and some eggs when I feel like it and maybe a piece of salmon. And that is, that's just the way that my system works. I'm mainly plant-based. I used to be a very staunch vegan. Then I went vegetarian, then I got more flexible and then I became, you know, pescatarian. And then I was like, oh no, I can't eat fish all the time. And so I'm... I I don't know what I am. I just Mm -hmm. am. I eat according to what I feel. And the thing is, when I was vegan, I noticed that there was a political agenda. If that is your thing and you authentically feel aligned to standing up for the animals because you feel they're being exploited, I thought that that was my thing because I was riding on this bandwagon with all these other vegans who happened to be very angry and (laughs) upset with the world. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That is the role that their soul elected to play Mm -hmm. because without someone who is having this impassioned voice for the animals, then the world would be imbalanced, right? Now, if everybody was on that bandwagon, we'd have a, a... we have a very topsy-turvy world as well. We need the right balance of people. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I was only jumping on that bandwagon because there was a part of me that just wanted to be right and wanted to feel good that I was doing the right thing. It wasn't actually because 
there was a deep part of me that wanted to, now I, I, I care for animals, but it's not my passion. Okay, where there's other people who are zookeepers or biologists or marine biologists, and they are so deeply passionate about animals. That's mm -hmm. not me. So my political agenda I had for, you know, being vegan at that time in my early 20s, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't make any sense, right? So I, I've let that go. Now, th this is this is something we have to go through as, as people. We make choices and then we make mistakes and then we kind of wear on different clothes and then we decide like, oh, this fits. No, this doesn't fit. Um, and, you know, in terms of trauma and suffering, it's the same thing though. You know, it, I am going to go into a self-deprecating, I hate myself, woe is me mode. That's a choice. You wear that on for... I don't know, one month, one year, two years, who knows how long it is until you feel tired enough <laughs> of repeating <laughs> the same cycle and then you decide to do something and get out of it, right? So suffering is also a choice. This is not something that, and, and I used to get really upset at people who are constantly choosing suffering. It's like going into, let's say, a Pilates class, right? Or a yoga class and someone is, is rushing and they're they're misaligned and they look like they're gonna hurt all their joints. That's a choice. I used to get very upset at this type of personality and I would you know, force them to go, hey, look, slow down. You're gonna hurt yourself. And of course, this energy of person would still rush and refuse <laughs> to listen. And then I would get even more frustrated, like, hey, wait, stop. You're going to misalign like your shoulder girdle and you're gonna, oh, oh, they hurt themselves. That's a choice, right? So there's only so much you can do. And then there's varying degrees of suffering. So, mm -hmm. and it's not to say that, you know, you don't stop a kid from reaching their hand out to put their hand on the stove. Yeah, you do that once. But then, then when someone becomes an adult, they make their own decisions. And mm -hmm. you say it once, you say it twice, but then if it becomes this, this repetitive thing, I mean, that's really taxing on yourself as well. So when you start to see, right? yeah, yeah. So when you see suffering that way, then, then, then you know that it's, it's temporary, right? And, and that mm -hmm. eventually someone, they, they will come out of it. Um, yeah. Basically maybe you're meant down. to guide them and maybe you're not, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking it basically cycles back to the acceptance thing and learning how to come back to a place of acceptance and letting go. Um, so that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so before uh, before we play our game, could you possibly tell everyone where they can find your stuff, where they can find your book? And you mentioned that you have a program you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So my book is on Amazon. Do you guys have Barnes and Noble in Canada? Um, it's also in I feel like yes, but maybe no. I, <laughs> I don't know Canada very well. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, um, it's yeah. If you go on the Amazon website or the Barnes and Noble website, or you just search for Sage Sapien colon from Karma to Dharma, the subtitles from Karma to Dharma, the main title is Sage Sapien. Perfect. There will like be a Homo link sapien, as well. Sage. Yeah, and it's also there's also a link to it on my website if that's easier, and that's just my name Johnson Chong C H O N G dot com, and more information about my eight week. Uh, spiritual program. It's a transformational journey into everything we've talked about, all, all of these 
stories that we tell ourselves, some of the stories that are not even ours, but live in our experience and how to rewire that and to let go of it so that we can create a more aligned version of ourselves. And that's also on my website at johnsonchong.com slash rebirth. The program's called Rebirth, Emerging from the Suffering of Your Limited Self. And I, I really like the groups that are, are coming in there. They're people who know that that they can no longer exist in this old way of being and that it's it's not about intellectualizing a bunch of information that people read from, let's say, a personal growth book, mm -hmm. but it's about living it and embodying it. So again, it's that difference between the map and the actual territory of the place. Mm -hmm. When we actually go in and start discovering it, because right now we're doing this lovely intellectual conversation about it, but actually going in and looking at the shadows and shedding all this stuff can be a little bit scary. And and there's a lot of energetic experiences that happen. There's a lot of conscious relating and uh, repatterning of, of things that no longer serve us. And all that sounds really nice on paper, but then again, mm -hmm. doing it is a completely uh, different experience. Messy, I'm sure. Um, yes, messy. <laughs> yes, that's a great way of describing it. <laughs> So, um, can you tell me a little bit, just because I'm just super curious, a little bit about the structure? Like, do you do Zoom meetings one on one? How do you uh, how do you structure sure, the yeah. program? It's done with there's audios and videos that are done for homework. So every every week there's a theme. So the first week actually is we start with intergenerational karmic stories, things that our parents, grandparents, all of, all of those belief systems, and we go through them and we evaluate and reevaluate what holds true for us and okay. what doesn't make sense anymore. And, and then we continuing every week with the new theme until eventually we come up with our new story. And there's also two Zoom sessions that are live uh, on top of all the audio and videos every week. Okay. And those lives are when we actually dive into an energetic experience. So we do distance work on Zoom, meaning that I, I hold energetic space by, you know, without getting too techno um, or technical about the, the lingo, I, mm -hmm. I create a energetic space for people to feel safe so that they can then dive into those hard to reach parts of ourselves. And then people go through their experience. So there's music, there's inquiry-based questions, there's energy happening as well. And then people dive into their experience and then they explore. And then they come out of it feeling a, a, a realization, an embodied realization where they go, oh, right, that's what I meant all along when I said that I'm not good enough. Now I actually know what it feels like and I know where exactly lives my body and I know why I want to release it. And those are typically the missing pieces for people. They, they intellectually know that something has to change, but they don't actually have the feeling of the why. And until we have the why, we won't know the how. And, and the how kind of naturally comes when you have identified the why. Mm -hmm. And to, to identify the why, it's not a, again, it's not an intellectual knowing, but it's a felt visceral knowing. It's, mm -hmm. it's a 
Oh, right. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Oh shit, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that sounds that sounds incredible, and I'm I'm super happy that you're making that accessible for people. Um, so uh, I'm gonna put these links in the description of the podcast so that people can reach it. They don't have to write it down as they're going. So if you missed it, you don't have to go back. It'll be it'll be linked. Um, and are you ready to uh, to guess some Scottish slang? Oh my goodness. Okay, let's <laughs> Scottish slang. You know, when I was in Scotland like a very long time ago, I needed translators. I honestly, I did not know who was saying, okay, here we go. Off you go. Right. So just so you know, I'm just reading it off the internet. So so if I do poorly or if there's Scottish people listening, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> all right. So first is Bagsy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bagsy um, is, mm, does that mean uh, like bags under your eyes or, or like a tote bag? What is that? It's, uh, it's apparently the equivalent of calling shotgun or dibs for the, the last oh. cupcake or front seat. Um, so it's like dibs okay. and shotgun rolled into one. Interesting. Um, I never would have thought. Uh, oh, um, okay. I'm looking for ones that aren't also stateside. Um, budge up. Budge up. Okay. What about like, uh, does it mean to, like, if you're in a line, like move up or move ahead? Uh, close, close. It's like move over. Move so, over. Okay. So like, um, if you're, if you're on the train or whatever and you tell someone to budge up, that would mean like, you know, scooch over. Um, <laughs> chin wag. A chin wag. Okay, I'm doing it now. Chin wag. Does that mean no? <laughs> it's uh, it it's no. It's just what we've been doing this whole time—a friendly conversation. So, yep, oh. for a chin wag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so fascinating. Language um, is such a fascinating thing. Yeah, I, I love I love this stuff. I'm like borderline obsessed with like slang and and you know colloquialisms and, and accents and all that stuff. So this is so fun. You're in me. Australia, they love to shorten everything. So like a tradesman, they call them tradies. Everything <laughs> is a they just shorten everything. I, I like to do that too. I always call my boyfriend my boyf. Um, he's boy. like boyf. <laughs> I was like, you can call me girl. He's like, maybe not. Um, <laughs> Um, chuffed. 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 How do you spell that? C H U F F E D. Chuffed. Oh wait, I think I know this. I, I my partner is Northern Irish, so I mean some of this, some of this. I really should know some of this slang because they share similar words in Northern Ireland. Oh gosh, chuffed. Is that? Does that mean <laughs> this is embarrassing? Oh, I should know this. Um. <laughs> Uh, does it mean that you're mm, you're fed up? Uh, no, almost the opposite. It means you're pleased or delighted. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Not sure how chuffed he'll be, um, or they'll be. I'm sorry, I don't know the. <laughs> uh, um, okay, dishy. Dishy. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what do these mean? Um, <laughs> dishy. That you um uh that you've dished some dirt on somebody or something? I'm not sure. 
No, I actually find this one really interesting. Um, <laughs> it says uh, hot or good looking, and then it says suggested alternative definition, David Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> Dishy, like a good dish. Yeah, like, like oh, they're quite a dish. Um, <laughs> I see. Well, that makes sense. And then uh, we will do one more. Um, ooh, I haven't I've gotten never, anything right. I've never heard of this one, so <laughs> I think you got one. Um, <laughs> know your onions. Know your onions? Yeah. Know your onions. Know what you're dealing with? Sort of. uh, Yeah, knowledgeable or clever. So, like, if you got good grades, you sure know your onions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for participating. Um, That was hard. (laughs) And, I mean, all all I have to do is pull up a list on the internet and hope to goodness that, that they uh, care enough about accuracy um, to not get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Thanks so much for that. Um, is there anything else you want to add before I uh, say say goodbye to my listeners? And No, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for everyone who's tuning in. And if anyone has any questions about anything or wants to stay in contact, I'm Happy to. I'm also on on the socials on Facebook and Instagram if anyone wants to reach out. It's just my name, Johnson Chong, and then underscore Sage Sapien on Instagram. Perfect. And and then it's just my name on Facebook. All right, perfect. So Chong. I can uh, I can throw those into uh, into the description as well, and then anyone can reach you for any of your programs or just info. And so thank you again so much. It's been so much fun. And I, uh, I just delighted with the, with your phrasing. Oh, and I almost forgot. He also does meditations. So if you agree with me that his voice is fantastically soothing, check it out. Um, <laughs> There's links on the website too. If people <laughs> want to listen to some meditations that I've done. Yeah. Before we, uh, before we hopped on, I was like, you should do an audiobook. Um, I was so excited. Um, So uh, thank you so much, Johnson, and to my listeners, I love you. Bye. (laughs) 